Father, we are so grateful, so grateful that your spirit comes and it is poured out here as we worship, that your spirit begins to draw our hearts into your own. Lord, there is a beauty, a beauty when it comes to worship. We understand that we were created to worship you. And not not just simply in, in, in deeds, but Father, I believe that we are created to worship. And, and when we come into this place, Lord, it's just not intellectual, but it's when our hearts begin to be moved and our hearts begin to accept you and our hearts begin to receive your word and our hearts rejoice, Lord. May you continue to do that work here in this place. May you continue to truly gift um, the, the, the worship leaders, may you continue to pour your blessings on them and your spirit on them that we can receive fully, Lord, receive fully all that you have for us as a body. Father, we recognize that you are authoritative. We recognize that you have a plan and a will. We see that in the life of Saul and Samuel and David, and we see that, Lord, also in, in our lives. When we recognize, Lord, your hand, we recognize your heart, we recognize how you move. So tonight, Lord, as always, give us ears to hear what your spirit would speak to us, your church. Knit us to an understanding of this beautiful passage of, of who you, who you would raise up as a king, a man after your own heart. And so teach us what it means to be those kind of people, people after your own heart, leaders, worshipers. And I think those two things fall hand in hand. And so instruct us now, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, saints, if you would open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16, and it's one of the most profound passages in the Scripture. This is where God brings this young man, David, and anoints him as king. We understand that Saul has been rejected, and so as he, last chapter in chapter 15, remember we're in verse 27, he, he grabbed the edge of Saul's robe, it tore it away. And so in verse 28, Samuel said, the Lord has torn the kingdom from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. This is what we're looking at. There is, there is a, a point where God has now removed the authority of Saul as king. He's going to remove the anointing of Saul as king, and he's going to put that authority, he's going to put that anointing upon David. Now, what we see as we go through this couple of verses, even before we begin reading, that I want you to be aware of, in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, it makes this declaration, but now your kingdom, speaking to Saul, shall not continue. For the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. No longer is Saul going to be the steward over the nation, but God has removed him from that position. And now what God does is he puts in a new steward over that position he's going to put on in David. And so we see here that incredible understanding where God has told Saul, you know, in that 15th chapter, verse 28, he's torn the kingdom of Israel from you today. He's given it to a neighbor. And he says this about the neighbor, the neighbor is better than you. 
It's incredible that what we begin to see here is this moving of the, the, the Spirit of God. It opens up in verse 1 of 1 Samuel chapter 16. Now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul, seeing that I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. It's amazing that Jesus in the New Testament is not known as the son of Abraham. He's not. The New Testament is known as the son of David. We begin to see that David is that king that God has raised up. Now, we've talked about this before, that over the entirety of the nation of Israel, there have only been four kings. Only four kings. The first king that reigned over the entirety of, of Israel would, was Saul here. The second is going to be David, as we're going to see his calling here this evening. The third is going to be his son Solomon. And after Solomon, the kingdom is now divided. So you have no king that rules over the entirety of the nation Israel until there's one who's born king. He's born there in Bethlehem. He's a descendant of David. And as we see within the Gospels, amazingly, that where Mark or where, where Matthew tells us that he is the, the son of Joseph, as Joseph, he marries Mary, he then adopts Jesus, he then becomes the firstborn, and as the firstborn of Joseph, who's from the lineage of Solomon through David, all of a sudden we begin to see that he has the right to be king. But yet what's amazing is this, is in Luke's gospel, he actually takes it not through the line of Solomon, but he takes it through David's other son, Nathan, and then you get to Mary, and then of course Mary marries Joseph, so he becomes the son-in-law, and that's the bloodline. So amazingly that although Jesus comes through Mary, he's of a bloodline that he can be king. And it's a pure bloodline that's not corrupted through Jeconiah. But what we do see is this, that beautifully he is legally the king without the corrupted bloodline, but he is perfectly the king through the bloodline. And so we see God's wisdom in, in choosing Jesus to come through David and he becomes that fourth and final king that's over all the nation and I want you to see here that we begin to recognize that here God tells Samuel and I think it's important how long are you going to mourn for Saul and I think one of these things that we have a tendency of setting our hearts here on earth we have a tendency of setting our hearts in, in what we know and we have a hard time when what we know, God moves us on from it. He says, you got to move on from this. You've been holding on to this too long, and I'm moving you into something new. And, and yet we, we, we stay where we're familiar. We stay where we're comfortable. And all of a sudden, we begin to see that he tells Samuel, quit mourning for Saul. And I, I think it's important that back in our, our text last week, remember? <coughs> Verse Samuel 15, 35, Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. <coughs> but then it says this, nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul. <coughs> He's not there 
seeing him. He's not there ministering to him. He's not there being open, bringing him the word of God and the spirit of God. He simply leaves him, but yet he grieves. He grieves. What are we going to do now, Lord? And the amazing thing is this, that if Samuel would have remembered what he had said, that when he did tell Saul that this kingdom is not going to be yours anymore, the Lord has brought out someone else. He's given it to a neighbor, someone better than you, a man after his own heart. He just at this point doesn't know who that person is. I love the fact that as, as he comes and he says, listen, I have provided myself a king among his sons. There's a passage that I want to just share with you found in, in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Two verses that I, I want to, to read to you. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, it makes this declaration. And he said to him, look, you are old. Your sons do not walk in their ways. Make us the king to judge just like all the nations. And the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king. So Samuel prays to the Lord. And he goes, heed their voice. I want you to listen to them. Now, amazingly, what Saul is, is Saul is the king that the people wanted. David is the king that God wanted because he has to be a man after God's own heart. You, when you have a leader, and I think it's important to recognize why David is going to be called the man after God's own heart. Not only is he a leader as far as surrendering to God, recognizing I'm a steward of everything that's yours. It's not mine, it's yours. If you're going to give me the kingdom, now keep in mind when David is anointed king, he is the king, but what does he do? He doesn't take the kingship yet. Saul continues to reign for years and years while pursuing David, seeking to kill David. At the same time, David's king, Saul isn't. But Saul will not release the kingdom, and David wonderfully will not take the kingdom. He's grieving the one time that he actually kind of mocks him by cutting off the corner of his robe, saying, you have no real authority. Your authority is removed from you. And, and David says, listen, I won't even lay my hand anymore against the Lord's anointed. I, I can't do that anymore. He recognized that if God, if you're going to put me on the throne, you do it. If you're going to remove Saul, you do it. It's not going to be me. And so when God says that I have provided myself a king, this is declaring that this is God's king, not the people's king. And then we see Samuel now worried in verse 2 because Samuel says, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do and you shall anoint for me the one that I name you. Samuel is worried. If he, he believes that if Saul actively sees him anointing another king, that in any other culture, this would be called treason. You have a king, there's someone who wants to put in another king and remove you from being king. Any other culture, this would be treason. And treason, as you know, is what? It's a death penalty. Someone's trying to take your kingship, you take him out. And so we see that here Samuel is worried about this. Is this treason? Is this treason? Well, understand it's not treason. Why? Because the kingdom was never Saul's. It was always God. 
And Saul was, in this sense, a steward over the kingdom. God can raise up. God can take down. He's not the boss. God is. And so what happens is because he has this nervousness about him, and he says, listen, if Saul hears it, he's going to kill me. If Saul hears that I'm going to Jesse the Bethlehemite, to one of his sons, to anoint him king, he's going to kill me. And I love what God does because he allows Samuel to kind of make a compromise. He says, listen, if you're worried about Saul, then then know this. This is what you can do. Invite Jesse to a sacrifice, and then I'm going to show you what you're going to do there. But all anyone has to know is this, that they will say that you've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, the sacrifice that he's about to do is called a peace offering. A peace offering is where God has his portion and then the people partake of their portion. And so he's coming to Bethlehem to offer a peace offering. And so he's bringing this offering to the people. And God says, listen, if you're so nervous, if you're so nervous, then just simply say, God's called me to come to Bethlehem to sacrifice. And so then invite Jesse. Now, for those of you that are familiar with your Old Testament, there's a passage in the book of Ruth. It's just a, a you know, book over. But, but what happens is this. In, in, in Ruth chapter 4, there's this beautiful passage that makes a declaration. Verse 13 and verse 17 of Ruth chapter 4 makes this declaration. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And so, verse 17, the neighbor woman came to him, gave him a name saying, there is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. And beautifully, we see this wonderful picture of as we see here, Boaz being that picture of the kinsman redeemer. Ruth, the, the one who's a Gentile that comes in as a believer. And then God uses that union to bring about Obed, Obed to Jesse, Jesse to David. So within this union that comes so beautifully where Saul, if he hears about it, is going to be angry. Samuel's worried about it. So the Lord simply says, just take a heifer. And say you're going to sacrifice. Now, he says, invite Jesse, verse 3, and I'll show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me the one that I name you. At this point, Samuel has to walk by faith. He's a little trepidatious. We know that. And at the same time, God has said, you're going to go. You're going to start with the sacrifice, saying, give sacrifice to the Lord. And then I'm going to guide you step by step. So... I love verse 4. This is where the key comes in. Samuel did what the Lord said. I want you to just find yourself to be assured that when God calls you to go into a, a ministry, when God calls you to go forth into something and you're worried about something else, that God has a way of simply says, listen, you don't have to be worried about that. <laughs> be anxious for nothing. I'm going to guide you step by step. And so what you're nervous of, don't worry. Take the first step. If you take the first step, I'll guide you in the second step. 
If you take the second step, I'll guide you in the third step. And don't worry, if you're stepping wrong, I'll correct that. And this is a beautiful thing for us as Christians when we get terrified of moving out because we have fear of what's going to happen if I begin to move in this direction that God has called me. There's trepidation, there's fear. But know this, take the first step. That's all you have to do. And you, don't, you don't have to go beyond that, but take the first step. And this is what verse 4 declares. Samuel did what the Lord said. He takes that first step. He goes. And he went to Bethlehem. And as he goes to Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? Now, you think about this. They've already said, Samuel, you're old. And now they're worried, do you come peaceably? What I love is this. Apparently, the word has gotten out. That there in chapter 15, verse 33, you guys remember the situation that happened last week. Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Apparently, when this old prophet gets hacked off, people start falling. And, and so they're nervous. They're like, are, why did you come here? Is there any, are, are, is it, we're, we're worried about why you're here. Is, are you, have you come peaceably? And I love his heart. Verse 5, he said, peaceably. Just peaceably. He lets them know you have nothing to worry about. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And so he's able to now walk that first step. Nothing more. He's able to come. They're nervous about what's going on. And he simply gives that command that God told him in verse 2, where he said, you say I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. What does he do? He says, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Do you understand how God gave him a perfect word to walk? It was the word that you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to worry, but just take this first step, and then I'll guide you into the second. And so he goes to the elders that were there in Bethlehem. And as he talks to the elders there in Bethlehem, he said, sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So at this point, he tells them, I want you to consecrate yourselves. And then amazingly, what he does is this. He goes into Jesse and he himself consecrates Jesse and consecrates his son. So if anyone else does it wrong, they can do it wrong. But Jesse and his sons, it cannot be wrong. And so it says he consecrates Jesse, and he consecrates his sons. Now, it declares this. Verse 6, so it was when they came that he looked at Eliab, and he said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. As he looks at Eliab, and Eliab is another one of those kind of like Saul, tall, handsome, rugged man, he sees Eliab and instantly says, oh, firstborn, got to be the guy. Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And that him should be capitalized in your Bible. In other words, the Lord's anointed is before the Lord. I know this is the guy. 
But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. I want you to see that what happens is that once again, that Samuel begins to make this assumption by outward appearance. And I think that that happens a lot. That happens a lot in our culture, that when we see someone who on the outward appearance has a look or a behavior or, or a stature, they go, yes, this is the guy. This is the guy. And the bottom line is, is what? That's not what God sees. God doesn't need someone of great stature, or great beauty. I love how they say of Jesus, he had no, no form or comeliness. People would desire him. It wasn't like Jesus was, you know, six foot three, blonde hair, blue eyes, radiated light everywhere that he went. Go, that has to be the Christ. He was just an average, ordinary, plain man. But the beauty of Christ was what? Inward. This is where the attraction comes. And so I want you to see that he recognizes where initially goes, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And God says, listen, I have refused him. Now, why does God refuse Eliab? Well, the reason being because of his heart. I want to take you to a passage just so that you can be aware of it. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 28, we'll be getting to this next week. It makes this statement. We see that here, David comes and he is going to be giving food to his brothers and food to the king. And as he brings these gifts to his brothers and to the king, he looks upon this scene and he simply says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defile the armies of the living God? Well, what's up with this guy? You guys are the armies of God. We know this. We understand that. Well, so amazing, Eliab, verse 28, his oldest brother heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David. Now, David here is simply speaking truth. David here is simply speaking faith. And he simply says, who is this guy? Now, Eliab has a problem. Why? Because Eliab is among the army that's sitting on the hill, terrified to go down to meet Goliath. And David says, how could you guys be afraid of this guy? How could you be sitting here? What's going on? And Eliab, I want you to note this, his first revelation of his heart is that his anger was aroused against David. And I want you to see what he does with his anger. He said, why did you come down here and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart for you have come down to see the battle. Amazing. He goes, I know how prideful you are. I know the insolence of your own heart. Now, I love how Romans teaches us in chapter 2 that you're able to see the sin. Why? Because it's a part of who you are. But he wants to project it upon David. And I want you to see that he literally has this understanding in his own mind where he says, I know your heart. <laughs> Who can know the heart? 
But Eliab believes, I know your heart. Look at what he says again. I know your pride and the insolence of your heart. I know what's going on in your heart. I know how you are. And David simply comes and does what? He's serving. He's serving his brothers. He's serving the king. He's serving his father. And all that Eliab can do is what? He can ridicule him. He ridicules him. He said, why, where did you, whom did you leave those few sheep? You are just a little shepherd over a little flock. In other words, David, you are next to nothing. And he begins to ridicule him. And then he, after he ridicules him, then he slanders him. He says, look at what you've done. He said, I know your pride, the insolence of your heart. It's absolutely incredible to see that what happens is he's initially, when David comes to serve, he's met with opposition, but the opposition is his own brothers. No wonder Jesus is called the son of David. When Jesus has opposition, it's against what? His own brothers. When he's ridiculed, it's against his own brothers, the nation of Israel. When he's slandered, it's against, it's by his own brothers, the nation of Israel. And so this is Eliab. And I want you to see that when Samuel looks at the outward, God says, you don't want this guy to be your king. You don't want this man who looks at a younger brother and begins to just be in opposition, begins to ridicule, begins to slander him. This is his heart. And so what the Lord does to Samuel is he makes the statement in verse 7, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I love this. This is where God is looking. This is where God is seeing. And that's why back in chapter 13, verse 14, we understand where he says, Now your kingdom shall not continue, for the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. This is what God is wanting. He's no longer wanting someone else, but he's wanting someone simply to be a man after his own heart. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 14, it makes this statement, and I want to just read it to you because it kind of shows a little bit about what David and his heart is for the Lord. When David is bringing the ark of God into the, 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 the nation, it says this, David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. He was wearing a priestly garment. And he was just dancing. He was just rejoicing before the Lord. Here comes God. Here comes God. Here comes God. The, the, the symbol of God, the ark, is coming in to be with us. But you begin to see what kind of man that David was. And so he makes this statement very simply. The Lord doesn't see as man sees. And I think this is an important thing to recognize because we have this tendency of thinking, I think I know what's going on. Bottom line is what we see through glass darkly. That's the best we can do. And so we don't fully understand. We can never know a man's heart. We don't even know our own heart, but God knows our heart. We know God's heart. So what do we do? Just start going to his heart. Don't worry about men. Don't worry about what they do. God's going to raise up men as he sees and understand this, that when he removes one man, he's already raised up another. God's work is going to continue to do what God wants it to do. 
And so he makes this statement. He says, the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearances, but the Lord looks at the heart. So verse 8, Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. Verse 9, he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Now, this should be a telltale. Because when God told Samuel, listen, I've provided a king among his sons. And then he says this, you need to invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I'm going to show you what you should do. And when he had done that, remember what Samuel did, that he consecrated Jesse and his sons. And this is what he began to do. And as he then, at the end of verse 5, remember, he consecrated Jesse and his sons. It's interesting, was David there or was only the seven? See, David is out watching the sheep. That's where he's at. Because we understand in verse 11, Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, and there he is, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send him, bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes. It's absolutely amazing that when David, as the youngest of the sons, is not even called initially. It's like, well, you're not important. Saul's asked for me, he's asked for my sons, and I don't even recognize you as, as being worthy of coming. You're just the youngest one here. But I think it's important, and I want to share just, just a couple of things here, because when it comes to being the youngest, two portions of Scripture that you should be aware of. The first is found in Psalm 89. I'm just going to read two verses to you. I'm going to read verse 20 and 27 of Psalm 89, and, and the, the first begins this. In Psalm 89, verse 20, it says, I have found my servant David with my oil. I have anointed him. So, as, as Ethan comes and writes this psalm, he says, I found my servant David. And in verse 27, he makes a statement, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Do you understand? He says, I'm going to make him the firstborn. Now, it's not necessarily the firstborn as the first one that's ever been born in the family, but the firstborn is what we understand is the firstborn is the one who has authority, the one who has the, um, that recognition of he's the foremost or first in place. And that's why in, in, in uh, Colossians 1.15 where it says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, speaking to Jesus, that basically saying he's the firstborn, he's the foremost, he's the one who is the, um, the, the first in rank, first in position, not simply the first being born. And I want you to see that although here David is the youngest, there's something amazing about his heart and the Lord sees it. And of course, he wasn't invited there, but Samuel says, listen, you have to get him because he says he's simply there keeping the sheep. I think it's amazing that I want to show you just one little path here about David and his faithfulness in his calling to do what God calls him to do until God moves him beyond. It talks about David keeping the sheep. 
right there in verse 11. He's the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. In 1 Samuel 16, verse 19, what we're going to see in just a little while, we're going to see that Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David, who is with the sheep. So here David, he's, he's anointed the king, and what is he doing? He's keeping the sheep. And then eventually he gets called to be the armor bearer of Saul. He gets called to be within the, 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 the working of Saul. But it says this in chapter 17, verse 15, but David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Do you understand his faithfulness that although he's the king, he doesn't have a problem being what? Being a shepherd of those few sheep. And he's okay with that. Now, there's something to note here that I want to show you a little difference between David and Saul. Remember that when Saul had to go look for the, the donkeys that were missing, that they sent what? They sent a servant with Saul to go and find the donkeys. Do you understand that they don't have a servant watching the few sheep? David's family isn't to that point where we're like Saul and, and they were, were wealthy and they could have servants. Nothing is said about that. So in a sense, David, we, we see that, and scholars declare this, and I believe it, that he, he comes from a poor family. They didn't have the servants there. And so they go get him because Samuel says at the end of verse 11, we will not sit down till he comes here. He has to be a part of this. Verse 13, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward, so Samuel arose and went to Ramah. So somewhere either during the feast, before the feast, or, or right after the feast, Samuel, among just the family of, of, of Jesse, among his brothers, he goes and he anoints him. He takes a horn of oil and he anoints him. So within this, I think it's important to, to, to see just what here God has done for David. I want to read to you two passages. Just jot them down if you're a note taker. The first is found in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 4, where David is now anointed king. And it's not until chapter 2, verse 4, that all of a sudden now Saul is dead years later, decades later, and then we see that David's finally to the point where in chapter 2, verse 4, the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, the men of Jabesh-Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. David, after Saul dies, and this is decades later, finally gets to be anointed the king. But understand this, only over Judah only over the southern tribes. And it's not until chapter 5, verse 3, that all of a sudden we see here all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. Now it's all the elders, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. And David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. Incredible to see that it's years and years and years goes on, and eventually he gets to be anointed king over just the, the southern tribe, his tribe, Judah. They say, oh yeah, you're our king. And then it takes another time period before he's anointed over all Israel. When God calls and when God anoints, it doesn't mean that you are called instantly to go forward. 
It means that you are in a training process. It means that you will be going where God calls you to do, but there's still a process of training that has to happen. I remember when God called us here to Milwaukee, I couldn't wait to get here, and God delayed, and God delayed, and God delayed. Like, this seems I got to teach you. And to be honest with you, on the hindsight, I'm very grateful that God taught me those things before we got here. And it was things that I needed to know, things that I needed to understand about God, his ministry, his church, to recognize that none of this is mine, none of this will ever be mine. I'm only here as a steward to be faithful to what God has called me to do, and he can put me in and he can take me out, and and that's God and his authority. But I love the fact that here, David is now anointed and he's the king The Spirit, look at verse 13 again in the middle. The Spirit of the Lord came upon David. And now look at verse 14. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. You have to understand that Saul no longer has that anointing. Saul no longer has the Spirit. Saul no longer has that connection. Saul no longer has that confidence. So there's there's not a protection that God has given over Saul in the authority as a king because God is moved him on. And as soon as the spirit of the Lord departed Saul, notice what happens, a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. In the English, this is kind of an awkward sentence where it basically say a distressing spirit from God came upon him. We do understand that God is in in control of all spirits and he will allow his spirit to come, or he will allow other spirits to come. And so all spirits, like it's God's spirit, and it can actually say that God caused, um, and, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him, that God can allow demonic influence now to be a part of Saul's life because he's in disobedience. And although it's demonic, God can allow it to come. He can say, Saul's yours. He's departed from me and my protection is not on him. And so it isn't that God is is inviting it, but God is allowing it to happen. I think it's important to recognize that here, when the spirit of God is no longer there, other spirits can come and inhabit. A Christian, you have the spirit of God doing what? Is in you. That's what Jesus says. So the Spirit will be with you, then it'll be in you. And eventually, as a greater work happens, the Spirit will come upon you. But as the Spirit is in you, understand that you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. This is the Word of God. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is in you. No man can snatch you from the Son's hands. No man can snatch you from the Father's hand. You have the Holy Spirit. Now understand that there can be an oppression but there could never be this possession of of a demonic that comes inside because the spirit is in you. When Saul had the spirit of the Lord, the spirit was with him. Now the spirit is no longer. And so the distressing spirit comes and begins to oppress him. Well, in verse 15, Saul's servant said to him, surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Saul is now reaping the rewards of what he has sown. God has taken the kingdom. The kingdom is no longer his. Now, he could step down, but he chooses not to. And so, because he doesn't, God allows the demonic influence. And in verse 16, the servants of Saul said this, Let our master now command 
your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is a skillful player on the harp. And it shall be that he will play it with his hand when a distressing spirit from God is upon you and you shall be well. What God does is this. God gives to Saul at least a comforting word. When there is a person upon whom my spirit is and he then begins to bring worship to you, this worship is going to bring peace to your heart. And I want to just jump ahead real quick to verse 23 for just a moment because it says, and so it was whenever the spirit from God was upon Saul that David would take a harp, play it with his hand, then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. I want you to understand one of the things that make David a man after God's heart. He's a worshiper. He's called the sweet psalmist of Israel. I think what's amazing is when you spend a lot of time watching over sheep, and even if it's not a large flock, keep in mind that you have a lot of time to ponder, a lot of time to think. It doesn't take a whole lot of mindset to say, okay, here's, I, I can see all the sheep. Now do I got to constantly see them? Do I got to move this one over two feet? No, sheep can just kind of take care of themselves in certain areas once you herd them on. But what happens is this, David is a worshiper. And I want you to see here about what God does with David. Verse 17, Saul said to his servants, when they give him the word, let, let, let a guy come and play music. And, and when he does, your, your heart is going to be refreshed. So he says, provide me now a man who can play well. Bring him to me. He accepts the counsel. Now, it is interesting that he can accept a counsel to take him out of his troubles, but he cannot accept the counsel of God to say, I can take you out of these troubles. Obey me. Yet he wants a Band-Aid. He doesn't want that healing. He wants a Band-Aid. And rather than obeying God, he says, just, just bring someone. I'll listen to the people. I'll listen to the servants. But I won't listen to God. So, so I'm going to stay in this place. But provide me with this man who can play well. Bring him to me. Verse 18. Then one of the servants answered and said, Look, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and handsome in person, and, and a handsome person, and the Lord is with him. If you wanted one thing on your resume, what would it be? Just think about this. A man who's skillful in the arts, a man who's a mighty man of valor, that here's a man, and, and he's, he's, he's not afraid. He's a man of, of, of uprightness. He's a man of valor. He's a man of war. He's a fighter. He can take on lions. He can take on bears. He can be victorious in that. Do you want a man who's prudent in speech, one who's able to orate well? Or do you want a handsome person? Do you want the looks? What do you want on your resume? You know what I want? I want the last one. The Lord is with him. May that ever be what we want on a resume. All these other things can be, but if that one's not there, everything else is what? It's surface. It's nothing. If it's not for the last one, and I love the fact that here someone else is saying, look, I've seen the son of Jesse, and with all these things, the bottom line is what? The Lord is with him. I've seen the son. I know that God is there. And therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse saying, send me your son David who is with the sheep. He's still there. 
He's the king, and he's still with the sheep. He hasn't changed. He recognizes God. Okay, I got, I'm anointed as king. Let's get back to the sheep. This is, this is what my duty is. Until God begins to take me, what? To the next step. And that's what God did with Samuel, and this is what God's doing with David. And he's already told Saul what's the next step. Saul's not listening. You can see what's happening to him. David is waiting for the next step. And I love the fact that what? You don't have to rush the next step. This is the beautiful thing about being a Christian. Walk in obedience to what God has said, and then stay in obedience to what God has said until what? Until God tells you the next thing. You don't have to rush ahead. So often we like Christians are like little kids. If you have a seven-year-old, they can't wait to be 10. You have a 10-year-old, they can't wait to be a teenager, 13. You have a 13-year-old, they can't wait to be 16. You have a 16-year-old, he can't wait to be 18 and be an adult and to go and do whatever he wants to do when he realizes he's an adult and he still can't do those things. It's amazing. We always want to be what? More. I want to be there. I want, to, I want to look ahead. I want to look ahead. It's so important. Just rest the place that God has called you to. And that's what he did with Samuel. Remember that first thing. He says, just say, I've gone to sacrifice to the Lord. And he came to him. That's all I'm going to do is sacrifice to the Lord. And then consecrate yourselves. The God said, consecrate Jesse and his kids. So he takes a step by step. And he doesn't rush into those steps. He has peace with those steps. David, too, has peace with those steps. The only caution that I can give you tonight is that when God calls you to do something and you choose not to, that's what happens with Saul. God told him, step away. He didn't do it. There's going to be consequences for that. But all of a sudden, he says, I want you to send me your son, David, verse 19, who is still with the sheep. Well, Jesse took a donkey, loaded it with bread and skin of wine and a young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. So they knew who the worshiper was. They knew who the musician was. They knew who the one who God was with him. Verse 21. So David came to Saul, stood before him. I love this verse, but I wish this verse was a constant. David came to Saul, stood before him, and he, that is Saul, loved him, that is David, greatly. Amazingly, that when David was there with Saul, Saul, his heart began to recognize, David, you minister to me. And in that ministry, as we minister to one another, guess what? We begin to love one another. He was loved because he served. This is what David did. He served him, he served him, he served him. And it was through that that all of a sudden Saul began to love him greatly. And so David was raised up to be his armor bearer. Now, I want to share with you here in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 8 and 9. Just, just go over a, a couple chapters, but I want you to see that Saul began by loving David greatly. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 18, where in verse 7, they begin to sing their song. And as they dance, they say, Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands. All of a sudden, Saul doesn't have the, the reputation that David has. And so anyone who hears a song, Saul is saying his thousands, that's not a bad song. Except that. But it wasn't enough. Why? Because he could not be number two. David is ten thousands. And it says this. 
the insecurity begins to manifest itself as anger. Verse 8, Saul was very angry. And the saying displeased him. And they said they have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me, they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So verse 9, Saul eyed David from that day forward. It's amazing that his insecurity first manifests itself as anger, and then his insecurities try to latch onto a pride. It's, to me, they've only ascribed thousands. To me, they should have said, Saul is saying his thousands, and David slayed a couple too. I don't want it to have to be true. I just want it to elevate me. That's what he wants, and then... At that point, his insecurities then manifest themselves as a paranoia. What more can David have? They've already put him over me. And so we begin to see here that incredible understanding of just what's happening with Saul. And so there in verse 10, it says this, And it happened the next day that a distressing spirit from God came upon Saul and he prophesied inside the house. So David played music with his hand as at other times. But there was a spear in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the spear for he said, I will pin David to the wall. You understand that his anger, his pride, his paranoia has now manifested itself in, in an action of hostility where he says, I'm going to pin David against the wall. But David escapes twice. Then I want you to see that not only does he have the, this, this, this paranoia, the anger, the pride, the hostility, but look in verse 12. It says, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Therefore, Saul removed him from his presence, made him a captain over a thousand, and he went out and he came in before the people and David behaved wisely in all of his ways and the Lord was with him. Therefore, when Saul saw that he had behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. David again served the people. He served his king. He served Saul and, and he was just loved. And I think what happens is this, he doesn't try to be loved, he just goes about serving. And he doesn't worry about what the reaction is. And I think, isn't that some of the most intimate relationships that you have is when there's just someone who begins to serve you? Well, when someone begins to serve you, there's just this, this desire for love. There's this, this attraction that comes to that ministry. It's one of those things that's a danger, because through the service comes love. I don't know if you've ever seen or, or witnessed a, a young couple when they first get together and the guy tries to do everything for the girl. Let me serve you. Let me serve you. Let me serve you. Let me serve you. And he's constantly trying to do what? Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. And through, through that service, there's this attraction. Wow. Wow. They're just ministering to me, ministering. So this heart goes out. Well, eventually what? Once she says, I do, now it's you serve me. Be careful to that. It's, it's, it's one of those things where we looked at it before. It isn't those who say, look at me, look at me, look at me. It's what? Look at him. Look at Jesus. Look to him. And I just constantly want to guide you to him. And so it's just an amazing passage. And I love verse 21 where he loved him greatly. But keep in mind that love does not continue. 
but he becomes his armor bearer. In verse 22, Saul sent to Jesse saying, please let David come before me, for he has found favor in my sight. So he's asking for David to come and spend more time as his armor bearer, more time in his presence, more time bringing worship. And as David was more time in the presence of Saul, David was able to minister more as that distressing spirit came. Verse 23, so it was whenever the spirit from God was upon Saul that David would take a harp, play it with his hand, and Saul would become refreshed and well, and the refreshing spirit would depart from him. There's something amazing about worship. To be honest with you, that, that if, if there's ever, and I've, I've counseled people periodically about this, that if there's certain sins that begin to plague your mind, certain sins that sort of take over your life, and, and they just kind of consume your thinking and consume your actions, where it's, it's like an alcoholic in the drink. I can't rest until I have a drink. I can't, I can't have peace because I'm constantly thinking about this sin until I perform this sin. Then I can be, feel bad and guilty and repent. There's one thing about worship that is absolutely amazing. And the thing about worship is this. It changes your mind. It changes your whole mindset because what happens is no longer are you focused on that sin, no longer are you focused on that thing, but now you're focused on God. And once you begin to do that, and I've talked to people, just find yourself a song of worship. Find yourself something that you can instantly enter into. When that sin attacks you, pull that out and begin to worship. Because the last thing the enemy wants to hear from you in your heart is worship to God. And so it's an amazing thing that here... It's worship. And so often we think, no, we got to battle this. We got to fight it. That's how we, we're going to have victory. I'm just going to just, with grit and guts, I'm going to have victory over this. I want to take you to a portion of scripture. You, you can turn there if, if, you, if you're fast. If not, just, just, just focus on, on what I'm about to read. But in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, let me just share this with you. Because it, it comes to this point where all of a sudden that there is this this battle that's about to happen to Israel. And so Jehoshaphat's a little bit worried about what's going on. And eventually the word will come to him in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 15, where he says, listen, all you Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem and all you King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude for the battle is not yours, but God's. We're going to see this again in a couple weeks. The battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. He goes, the battle isn't yours. It's God's. And guess what God does? It's absolutely amazing where he says in verse 17, you're not even going to need to fight this battle. Just position yourselves. And so what does he do? Well, in verse 18, Jehoshaphat bows his head with his face to the ground. All Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the children, the Kohathites, and of the children of the Kohathites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with voices loud and high. And so they rose early in the morning and they went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you shall be established. Believe his prophets and you shall prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord, who should praise the beauty of holiness, and they went out before the army. This is incredible. Now, I don't know about you, but any general 
who says, all right, we're going to have a battle here. Let's send out the singers. You don't send out the singers first unless it's what? Unless it's the battle is the Lord's and the, the victory is what? Worshiping him. And I think it's important to recognize that when it comes to sin, the same kind of thing. Sometimes we try to say, I got to gut it out and grit it out. I'm going to have victory over this sin. Come back to worship. Come back to the simplicity and the purity of just worship. Come before the Lord. There's a, a, a Psalm 135 in verse 3. It makes this statement, just an incredible statement. Sing praise to the Lord for he is good. Sing praise to his name for it is pleasant. Come before the Lord. Sing to him. This is the beauty of what God does. In Psalm 57, verse 7, he makes this statement. He says, my heart is steadfast. Oh, God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise. Oh, wake my glory. I love this. He says, my heart is steadfast. It's steadfast. Why? I'm singing praises. There's one of those things that when we enter into worship, that is where our hearts are knit to God. And this is where... In this act of worship that Saul can allow his heart to draw near to God. But his heart draws near to God as what? As David is drawing near to God. This is the key to worship. Now, amazingly and so wonderfully, our worship leaders get this. What they do is this. They, they come before us and they worship God. That's what they're doing. They're looking. They're worshiping God. They're just focused on him. They're not focused on us. They're not focused on the things. They're focusing on God. And as they focus on God, guess what's happening? Our hearts, we just, we just come into that presence. Like I'm just, I'm, I'm, my heart is focused where your heart is. And as, as we're looking, we're looking through them and it just reflects back up to the Lord. This is the beauty of worship. And I think it's so important that when it comes to the areas of frustration, it comes to the areas where, where we're confused and we're, we're, you know, to that point of being distressed, come back in the, the beauty of worship. And it's just one of those things where in that act of worship, we realize how worthy God is to be praised. And I'm doing what I was created to do. And when we come back to the simplicity of worship, we come back to there, then all of a sudden, I think we, like Saul, become refreshed and well. It's just one of those things where you come in and all of a sudden, it's like, you know, I'm going to open up my heart. I'm going to open up my, my, my soul. I'm going to sing to God his praises because he's worthy. And then, and then, I'm refreshed. Isn't it amazing that it's just right after worship, like, oh, this is so good. I can't wait to hear the word now. Let's have dessert. What an incredible meal that's been. And so we're refreshed and then we're well. It's like everything in our lives is where it should be. The order is there. God is being praised and I'm the one who's just being responding to these praises to God. And there's peace. And so I think there's beautiful lessons for us in our walk with God. Simply take the first step. Take the first, don't be terrified, but take the first step. And then don't rush. Take the first step and then stay in that first step until God says, what, then take the second step. But when he tells you to take the second step, walk the second step. And, and then through that, whenever there's a place of doubt, whenever there's a place of, of tribulation, come back to the purity of worship. Come back to saying, there's a, there's a song that I'm going to have in my heart and I'm going to give it to God. And I'm going to worship God. I'm going to acknowledge God. It 
doesn't happen too often, and sometimes there's seasons where it happens more often than, than in other ones, but there are times when I'm working on a study that there's just a worship song that comes into my heart. And I begin to worship, and I just begin to worship. And then, and then you know, eventually it's like, oh, i got to get back to my study. So I get back to my study, and then the song comes back to my heart. And it, it's day after day after day after day. As I'm focusing on this passage, this song comes back. And those are those few times where I'll say, Regan, do me a favor. i just been, the song is on my heart. And sometimes, like, I've already had that song right now. We're already going to do that song. Praise God for that. And, and so there, there are times I'll say, the song is on my heart. Say, oh, yeah, yeah, this, we'll, we'll do this song. It's not always, but it is. And so just understand that it's a beautiful thing to, to when there's doubt, come back to the simplicity. When you're wanting to fight a battle, worship first. Give God the glory, put God in the position, put you in that subservient point of saying, I'm here to give you glory. I'm here to acknowledge you. And, and watch what that does in the victory of the battles. Watch God be glorified because you're saying, this is first. The worship is first. May that be who we are as, as his children. Amen? Well, Father, we're so grateful for just this passage how amazing this is and to see that no wonder that David was this man after your own heart. Yes, he was a warrior. Yes, he was a valiant man. Yes, he could, he could play the harp of all those things, but, but so amazingly you were with him and he was a worshiper. As we become worshipers, Lord, as we truly let ourselves go and, and we, we give you the glory and abandon that, that you then allow us to come in a position of being raised up to serve you in other ways. But teach us what it is first and foremost is to come and to be with you, to allow you to just guide us and to take that first step of faith and not to have to rush, but to wait on those things and to watch you move us on. Help us learn the lessons that this chapter is teaching us, that we can grow as your children that we can grow in a place to honor and glorify you. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.